I'm Carrie Miller, and this is Big Books and Bold Ideas. It's good to have you listening. If pride does indeed go with before a fall, our dear Professor Lieberman may be in for a comeuppance. Comeuppance is a great word, isn't it? Anatoly Lieberman has declared his newest dictionary so exciting, so rip-roaring, that it reads like a thriller. No, he says it's better than a thriller because you can open it at any page, go forward or backward, and find yourself neck deep in a never-ending intrigue. Well, we'll see about that, won't we? Anatoly Lieberman is a professor of languages and the author of many books. His new book is titled, Take My Word For It, A Dictionary of English Idioms. Professor, welcome back. Long time no chat. It's really good to have you back in the studio. I'm very happy to be back in the studio and very pleased to be able to speak to you. So I'm thinking that you might be proud as a barber's cat and cocky as the king of spades about this book. Yeah, you are quite right. Uh, especially, <laughs> I must tell you that it's very infectious. When Once you begin to speak in idioms, uh, you cannot stop. I know it from my <laughs> own experience. So be careful. So Proud as a Barber's Cat comes right out of your book. Where does it come from? Uh, with all those uh, as, as proud, as good, as clean, as... Uh, the question about where something comes from probably cannot be answered. Uh, in general, if you have read the book or even if you have read the introduction, you know that most of the sayings there are comparatively late. Uh, and if they reflect common wisdom, uh, then there is no way of finding out the source. Uh, you can find the source only when you have something truly special. For example, by hook or by crook, uh, you first of all uh, realize that you don't understand what it means. Uh, what is a hook here and what is a crook here? And then once you understand that, you may find the source. But when it comes to common wisdom, especially with those as, as, as blind as a beetle, as, and so on, or, or as clean as a, as a pink, the best thing you can do is to try to find out what what exactly these people mean when they say that? When there is a <laughs> proper name, uh, as busy as Batty, uh, uh, you are, of course, nonplussed. What is, who is Batty? Or is the only good thing about this saying is that it alliterates as busy as Batty? So the question of origins is very often uh, moot. I'm going to come back to by hook or by crook because... Um, I think people still, in fact, I hear people say that, and your origin explanation, well, is indeed quite thrilling because it goes back to the 14th century, and it's long and it's detailed, and I got the sense that you had a hard time coming to a conclusion about just exactly what the origin is. Is that right? You are right, and I have been uh, very careful in not forcing my conclusions on, on the readers, because in most cases, I do not have anything to force on them. Uh, I only know what so many people said uh, about the origin of such and such a saying. And if in 300 years or so, nobody could decipher the origin uh, of the phrase, uh, then how can I dare uh, do it? But sometimes, and this is a very good case, sometimes somebody offered a conclusion that seemed fully convincing to me, uh, and then I would support it, uh, saying, that's probably how it is. Uh, I uh, very often write about these things in my, in my blog, and there are comments, uh, I'm not sure that you are right. Neither am I sure that I'm right. Uh, but the discussion is worthy of offering it to the reader. Tell me what is so complicated to try to figure out what the actual origin of by uh, hook or by crook. I mean, one of the explanations, we should say, involves two men who were, I think, hired by a king to survey the city of London after the Great Fire. Do I remember this right? Yeah, yeah quite correct. Quite correct. Uh, the problem is that 
when you have something so incomprehensible as by hook and by crook, the problem with hook and crook is that the rhyme, and that's already suspicious, uh, it's not clear uh, whether that means anything at all. Uh, but uh, assuming that the expression, the phrase, has a meaningful origin, uh, people begin to guess. This guessing game, something that is called folk etymology. Uh, that is when people try to invent the origins. <laughs> it's the most dangerous thing in the world. Uh, I be- like the idea of that, though. <laughs> and uh, yeah. why is it dangerous? Yeah, yeah, well, be- yes, because people don't know anything about it, but they say, yes, oh, yes, of course. Uh, we have read it somewhere. Uh, there were two men, Mr. M- Mr. Cook and Mr. Crook, and all kinds of things, two judges or two ferrymen, and so on. And somehow, whichever path you chose, wherever you went, there was either Mr. Crook or Mr. Cook uh, (laughs) uh, uh, or Mr. Hook or someone uh, who is at your elbow. You need facts and not only guesswork. Is there any documentation that such ferrymen existed? Oh, everybody knows. That's the most dangerous thing in the world. If everybody knows, that means nobody knows it. Uh, And just gossip. Uh, Or two judges or or something. And this is nonsense almost by definition. But it's so hard to disprove this nonsense. So when someone finally... um, offers something reasonable, then you begin to think, that's probably true. Uh, You never say that's certainly true, but it looks like being a good explanation. So when I read that explanation, and of course the explanation is not mine, I found it in in one of the periodicals, I thought, so we do have the decipherment. What a pity that it's known so little. So I went all the way... uh, uh, for defending it. The same was with uh, paying through the nose. All kinds of crazy suggestions. And then I read something which I liked, be- not because I liked it, because I thought it, ma- it made sense. And then I said, that's probably how it is. I immediately received a letter, uh, you are probably wrong. Yes, I am probably <laughs> wrong. Uh, but that's the beauty that. of, uh, of writing an etymological dictionary. Every, especially of such phrases. Everybody has an idea, and everybody thinks that his or her idea is the best. Uh, I never fight. I only say, well, you think so? Fine. Uh, I think that my idea, uh, the one that I defended, it's not even mine, is good. You don't like it? Also fine. Let's part uh, the best of friends. Okay, so I want to read a couple of sentences from your explanation for by hook or by crook. And I think we've given listeners a sense about of why this is so complicated and the sources that you're reaching back to. So you wrote, Wilson's origin of familiar words and phrases, no bibliography in the world lists this book, says that it probably means foully like a thief or wholly like a bishop the hook being used by burglars, the crook being the bishop's crozier. And then you add, an old London legend tells us that the numerous families of hook and crook formerly did the ferry business for the whole of the British metropolis. Uh, so so you are going back to, well, it sounds like as far back as you can go to find the origin of these phrases, and you're looking in books that most people are not aware of. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. Uh, but not only books, and not mainly such books. Ah. My main sources, if you look at the list of abbreviations, uh, uh, are, were, have always been uh, periodicals. Uh, and my favorite periodical is called Notes and Queries. I, I think I have done so much for popularizing uh, Notes and Queries that they hmm. have to give me a special prize called, <laughs> called N&Q Prize, or something like that. Uh, this was an immensely popular journal or periodical, a bi-weekly, uh, in, which, was, which, were, which a man called John Toms uh, started in the middle of the 19th century. And it was like more or less, uh, more or less like our virtual chat room. Uh, you wrote a letter there uh, saying, I have a coin, but I'm not quite sure uh, 
what that coin says because the wording is so hard to read, it's almost illegible. Does anyone uh, know anything about such a coin? Two <laughs> weeks later, someone from Shropshire <laughs> or Yorkshire or Lancashire uh, uh, or any other county uh, gives the answer. Or uh, I have a book without the title page. Uh, the first story is called This and This. Does anyone know what this book is? And two weeks later, sure enough, somebody will say, of course, that's the book. I have three copies of this book at home. Uh, and the same thing was with idioms uh, and words. Uh, they discussed the origin of words and discussed the origin of idioms. And we went, we means my my team and and myself, and I had two absolutely wonderful uh, volunteers, uh, Trev Daniels and Bill Biermeyer, uh, they looked through thousands of pages, and I looked through thousands of pages. And unfortunately, when you deal with such a subject as the origin of idioms, you only have some people think so, other people think so. Uh, you very seldom have facts, something that can say, that is how it is. But you can always say, now, that is wrong, because there is no documentation, no historical record. There is nothing to prove that there were such two ferrymen, because if such two ferrymen had existed, there would have been something in the chronicles, something in the chronicles of the, of the city of London or somewhere about them. They never existed. These, these are ghosts. <laughs> Hook and Crook were ghosts? After Absolute, all this? Absolutely. <laughs> oh, no. uh, Mr. Hook is a ghost, uh, and, uh, and Mr. Crook is a ghost. Uh, so you can surely say these people never existed. Or there were two judges, uh, Mr. Hook and Mr. Crook. Or there were two people who took care of the fire of London. Again, Mr. Hook and Mr. Crook. If they had existed, they would have appeared in some chronicles, in some documents, somewhere they never existed. I'm Carrie Miller, and I know you recognize that voice. Anatoly Lieberman is on Big Books and Bold Ideas today. He's a professor of languages at the University of Minnesota, of course. And we're talking about his new book, Take My Word For It, A Dictionary of English Idioms. As we talk about some of these idioms that make our language uh, sparkle and shine, we're talking about what Anatoly and his team did to find the origins of some of these idioms, why some of them have endured, why others have disappeared. Um, again, the book is called Take My Word For It, A Dictionary of English Idioms, and it is delightful. Highly recommend it. Okay, Anatoly, I thought this was really interesting. You say that many idioms contain words that occur only in the idiom. Do that, I have that right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, okay, give me some examples of that. I, oh, for example, yeah. uh, I think uh, uh, you are very often left in the lurch. Uh, and <laughs> do you know exactly what the lurch means? <laughs> uh, do you know where, where you are left? Or uh, uh, quite often, as often uh, as that, uh, you take the brunt uh, of some attack. And uh, if you put a kibosh on something, however you pronounce <laughs> the word, the word, some say kibosh, but I think kibosh That's is better. Right. Uh, have you ever seen a kibosh? Uh, <laughs> and if you have, I, I, did you like it? Wait a minute. I interpret that. But but this is this is an excellent example because I don't think I've ever heard anyone use the word kibosh in any other way than to say I put a kibosh on it. Absolutely so, true. And you never heard brunt in uh, in any other situation. True. You only bear the brunt. Uh, right. Some words right. have uh, survived only in such idioms, and the etymology is sometimes very hard to discover. There is a thick book about the Kaibosh thing, and it's a thrilling book about how many attempts there have been to explain, <laughs> the, the, not the idiom, but to, to understand what the Kaibosh is. And, uh, and we now more or less know it. And 
there is more. Th- there is, I think, a page more than a page about this idiom, uh, because uh, I have been following the research of my colleagues uh, with, if I may use an idiom, with bated breath, and mm-hmm. uh, and when you think about bated breath, you are not sure what bated means, uh, and uh, that is a very common thing. Some idioms exist exist as whole entities. And some words exist only because they have miraculously uh, been preserved in such phrases. You know what's interesting? I've opened to your section on put the kibosh on. And what is clear, if you read through your explanation, is that the, the way that phrase was used also took on different dimensions as time passed. Right? It sounds like in the original usage, it wasn't as we understand it today. So how common is that with these idioms? Uh, more or less so, uh, especially because uh, put the kibosh on uh, is hard because no one really knows exactly what it means. Uh, though everybody knows more or less uh, that it means to put an end to, to some endeavor or to some enterprise. Uh, but since the kibosh is so obscure, uh, one doesn't quite know how to use it. Also, it's such a picturesque expression. You cannot simply uh, use it at will. For example, if I don't like somebody, I cannot say, oh, well, let's put, the, put a kibosh on it. Uh, it will be pretentious, <laughs> even right. stupid more than, than pretentious. You need a special situation in which put a kibosh on uh, is worthy of being used. Uh, that is why its meaning vacillates, but the general uh, meaning remains the same. Uh, mm. That is, to, to put an end to something. That remains the same. Uh, situations, of course, vary, as you said. Yeah, this, this is interesting. At the very end of these pages on Kibosh, you say that it got a second lease on life with the music hall song, We'll Put the Kibosh on the Kaiser, during World War One, Quite right. And has receded into the background. Now not everybody, at least in the United States, even recognizes the phrase, and those who do tend to pronounce it kibosh as though it was kibosh, with two or, Bs. Yes, or kibosh, yes. Kibosh, okay. Yes. I never ah. heard it, incidentally, I've never heard it uh, said by anyone, but my assistants who worked... Uh, on typing uh, this stuff, invariably pronounced kibosh. Hmm. I recognized a lot of these idioms, but there were a lot that I, I've never heard used that I didn't even recognize in print. And one of them is, "All my eye and Betty Martin." What? <laughs> what? what? Yes. Where does that have you ever ever heard anyone use that? Phrase? No, no, and I never will. Uh, uh, so many of the expressions of the idioms that uh, that are in the in this book are dead or have been dead deader than a doornail uh, and uh, <laughs> and that is what can be expected uh, this is not a book of popular idioms uh, this is a book of the idioms that people have been wondering about uh, for years sometimes uh, for more than two centuries, uh, trying to understand how they came about, uh, what the source is, and so on. Uh, And uh, sometimes such things happen uh, when there is indeed a second lease in life, uh, and people begin to recognize the expression. But in most cases, such expressions, if they die, they die. I know it very well because sometimes, just for the fun of it, uh, I use such expressions in uh, in my classes. Uh, for example, I see some of the uh, some of the youngsters uh, sitting near the window, uh, looking out of it instead of listening to me, and I would say, uh, John, I think you've gone wool gathering, and uh, to, to check whether whether my remark has been understood. Yes. It turned out that more than half of those present did know what to go wool gathering is. Uh, Or I I would say, uh, I've read your uh, midterms, very good answers. That warms the cockles of my heart. (laughs) Uh, And again, everybody would understand and smile uh, because nobody expects me to say something like that. Nobody expects anyone to say it. Uh, If you want to... uh, uh, 
pepper up uh, your speech with such expressions, uh, you must be very careful and not overdo it. Uh, but sometimes well, it's like any pepper, uh, any cinnamon, uh, you cannot eat it by the spoonful. Uh, but if you have just a few grains uh, of salt, of pepper, then fine. Uh, these are wonderful expressions. And I find that some people never use such idioms. Of course, there are some very common phrases, something like to put put something on, on a back burner, something like that. Uh, mm -hmm. This is very common and everybody uses it. Uh, sometimes, especially those that go back to sports, are uh, used rather often. Uh, something like, uh, "This is now in your court." The ball is now in your court. Right. Uh, oh yeah. Uh, or too, uh, too close to call, or something like that. Uh, these prop uh, prop up uh, rather often, uh, but I find that in general, books and my uh, those people whom I know, my interlocutors. Uh, differ greatly when it comes to the use of such idioms. I had a colleague who used them very often, much to my delight, and others who practically never use them. Uh, I have sp spoken to many Germans who are very fond of idioms, probably more so uh, uh, than, uh, than those uh, around me. It's very individual, the same with books. Uh, I'm very fond of Agatha Christie, uh, and... She is very fond of idioms, and I always mm -hmm. enjoy her way. Mm -hmm. From her, I learned the, ex the expression to be in a brown study. Uh, oh, I love that phrase. Oh, you I do? So Probably do I. Probably from reading Christie, too. Uh, yes, yeah. uh, so do I. It's a, it's a wonderful phrase, and it's totally incomprehensible. Uh, it was Poirot, uh, who, when in trouble, was always in a brown study. Uh, <laughs> and I thought it was such a Britishism. And then uh, three years ago, uh, for the reasons which I'll keep to myself, I reread Huckleberry Finn, which mm -hmm. I enjoyed immensely. And Huck once said, I was sort of brown studdish. I just <laughs> jumped up. So then in Mark Twain's day, uh, in the state of Mississippi, or in general in the South, somebody like Huckleberry Finn knew the phrase in a brown study, which is almost forgotten, uh, at least in the United States, but probably not in England, and that's why I thought it was a Britishism. Uh, one never knows who knows these expressions, who uses them, who uses these phrases almost as though it were the most natural thing in the world, and who simply does it to show off. Uh, there is a great lot uh, to be said about the use of such expressions. Don't you think, Anatoly, there is a, there's a fine line between using idioms to, as I suggested, make your, your language, your prose sparkle, and going overboard and sounding like a show-off? Indeed. I mean, and maybe the line isn't very clear Well, it's the same. that love idioms. Sure. It's the same with words. Uh, do you want uh, to use a word uh, that you know and probably no one around you knows? Uh, <laughs> do you want to show off and show that your vocabulary is uh, so rich? Uh, if you want to use uh, Latinized words, and uh, there are so many Romance words in English, hundreds, thousands of them, and you never know uh, whether you're, uh, whether you're company, your class, your friends, understand it. I remember once, uh, that was years and years ago, uh, I read a play called Look Back uh, in Anger by Osborne. Uh, the play was very popular uh, 60, 70, 70 years ago, and one of the characters used the word pusillanimous, and the uh, titular hero says, now what is pusillanimous? I don't know what pusillanimous means. Can someone explain to me what pusillanimous <laughs> means? I quite understand the dilemma. Uh, if you want to use a word to impress your listeners, think of the reaction. Weren't you telling me before we got started about arriving in this country and having a vocabulary 
I mean, you you said you were very fluent in English, but you used words that a lot of people didn't understand. Uh, like pusillanimous, yes, exactly. <laughs> yes, exactly. Why, why? Why was that part of your vocabulary? Uh, well, because, because of the way you'd learned being English? Being a or? foreign learner of English, uh, I tried to amass a vocabulary uh, which would be uh, truly impressive. Uh, and it was a rather dangerous enterprise. Uh, I would read a book, let us say, uh, John Fielding or Goldsmith, and would learn a word and enjoy it very much without realizing that the word was dead, had been dead uh, for two (laughs) centuries. Uh, So I would uh, use the word. I remember learning the word uh, from Goldsmith, L-I-M-N, which is pronounced probably limb without N at the end. I still see that in novels. I see that uh, word. Yes, sometimes I do too, uh, uh, to paint, to draw, Mm -hmm. and so on. Mm -hmm. So I would use it in such a nonchalant way uh, and uh, and see... uh, troubled look uh, in the eyes of my listeners. So I learned to use the words uh, which everybody understood. That doesn't mean that I stopped using uh, good words, uh, but at any rate, not 18th century idioms and not 17th century verbs, (laughs) uh, which nobody knows and nobody is expected to know. (laughs) I think that's kind of a shame. I'm Carrie Miller. You're listening to my Friday book show, Big Books and Bold Ideas. And Anatoly Lieberman and I have been reunited on the air. Um, He's out with a new book called Take My Word for It, A Dictionary of English Idioms. It is delightful from beginning to end, as Anatoly says in his introduction. It reads like a thriller. There's some really interesting sleuthing, I guess, on the page to figure out where some of these Idioms like pay the piper by hook or by crook, take the cake, and some of the more elaborate ones come from. And we're talking about the sources of some of these idioms and the idioms themselves, and some of them that are are still enduring in our language today. I mean, I think if you really become aware of this, you'll notice how many people are still using some of these idioms and others that have fallen out of favor in the language. So it's good to have you listening today. Okay, minutes and minutes and minutes ago, you used an idiom that I that I hear a lot and that I see is not in your book. It's deader than a doornail. You didn't write about that. Why? Because uh, I was limited by my sources. Uh, this is the question that you asked is much more serious than you even think it is. Uh, mm-hmm. There are countless books of idioms, uh, Thin books, slim, very slim volumes, and very thick books, and some of the thicker books are excellent. The problem with every dictionary, you never know where to stop. Of course, uh, if you are an editor of the Oxford English Dictionary, you include everything, and there is no problem. Every time you, <clears throat> every time you have a word, uh, you include it. Or if you are working on Webster's, Merriam-Webster's, Uh, then the same thing. The more words, the better. But there are millions of idioms, millions, really millions. Uh, uh, That's probably not even hyperbole. And you never know where to stop if you want to to have a dictionary of them. Also, uh, my main uh, problem was to deal with with such idioms uh, as need an explanation. For example, something that uh, uh, that we have talked about, put something on a back burner, uh, you don't need any explanation. It's a figurative uh, phrase. Uh, you know what a back burner is. As long as we have our technology, everybody will understand what a back burner mm-hmm. is. Uh, you mm-hmm. know what will happen if you put something on a back burner? There is no problem. Or if you have something like make hay while the sun shines, there is nothing for me to do with it. I can give... Uh, some illustrations uh, saying, well, so-and-so used this idiom. That's what so many uh, uh, dictionary makers do. But when you run into something like to sow one's wild oats, then you are in trouble uh, because you know what it means, but you don't know why it means it. And I try to stay only with such phrases as need some sort of explanation. 
and sometimes it's not an elaborate explanation, though in my word, uh, in my subject index, uh, you will find that there is a line, uh, um, questions that have never been answered. Uh, that is mm, local right. uh, expressions, uh, local sayings, uh, which probably have never been known outside one county, and still people wanted to know what they mean and how people use them. And nobody answered. As I said, in notes and queries, you would ask anything, and two weeks later, somebody would know the answer. <laughs> well, not everybody, and not all the time. Uh, there were some dead ends. And again, dead end is, of course, a figurative saying. But there is nothing that I can uh, say about it. A dead end is a dead end. And if you use it figuratively, fine. Uh, so I didn't try to make the dictionary large. Uh, there are about a thousand and probably a thousand one hundred idioms there. Only, and I could have added ten thousand of them. Uh, for example, uh, something like make uh, make hay while, while the sun shines. I have hundreds of so-called weather sayings or, or weather idioms <laughs> and I never included them because they're trivial. There is nothing for me to do about it. Or uh, there are uh, sentences uh, which are offensive and uh, I was very careful and would uh, include only something uh, that needed an explanation and even add and there are countless others of the same type. So it's not the th thickness of this book uh, that is, is its most attractive uh, quality. It's rather the exotic uh, sayings uh, <laughs> that yeah. should uh, should please the reader. You read and you always laugh. <laughs> what a funny expression. Uh, I've never heard it. But of course, nobody has heard it, probably. Uh, and uh, some of them were known uh, in England or in the United States or, or in Australia. And some of them are translations from French, just as there are words uh, which travel from country to country. Uh, there are idioms uh, which are internationally known. So when you have such translations, uh, there is again something to discuss. One of my greatest surprises uh, was uh, about stewing in one's own juice. Juices? Yeah. Uh, yes. Oh, yeah, uh, I've used that idiom. Yes. I'm sure you have. You still hear that today. Oh, yes, yes, that's common <laughs> enough, and there is nothing uh, exotic uh, about it. Uh, so, a stew in one's own grease, that's the form in which I have it. And it was very interesting. Uh, if you read the very end, you will see that it was quite a revelation to me, uh, because the expression is, to suffer from self-inflicted troubles. Uh, but uh, I knew it, uh, and as said at the end of it, but in Russian, the reference is true to its culinary spirit. People stew in their own juice uh, when they're doomed to remain in a narrow group of ever the same people shut off from external oh influences. Uh, that is in Russian, they say that uh, when they mean, well, what can you expect of him or her uh, constantly uh, stewing in... Uh, in his own Greece, he repeats the same banalities that he has been uh, hearing forever. Uh, there is nothing to learn from this person. And the meaning in English and in French is and in German is quite different. Uh, so one sometimes has a borrowing. I don't know, and nobody knows whether it is a truly uh, an English expression or whether it is some international saying traveling from land to land, uh, but their meaning of such phrases can change from land to land. Uh, some of them are old quotations from the Bible. There are very few of them uh, in the book. Or translations from French. Uh, and if you open the book as to, uh, to, uh, uh, to take, uh, about taking uh, a leave, uh, you, will, mm. uh, you will see that there are all kinds uh, of versions here. Whether you take Wait, a, 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 a French leave, yes. Whether it is oh, French really? leave, yes. Oh. It's page 237. Uh, to, ta it. to take French leave. And you see that the literature is huge. How many people, uh, though it is all old, 
between uh, 1879 and 1889, uh, but there is quite a problem with it. Why do we say so? Do the French say so? No, they say take English leave, which is very mm-hmm. funny, uh, because that's exactly what you would ex- would expect. But do the French really take this leave? And so it goes. I love your your origin explanation and all the all the different places that do the gooseberry to or do gooseberry to yes, do gooseberry could come out. That's on page ninety four. Yes, I know. I, I remember. I've worked um, with it uh, so so long. Do yeah, oh, you did. Oh yes. Sa- tell me why. Uh, be- because uh, uh, there are very few references here, and I wanted to find out uh, whether anyone really knows the the origin, uh, whether it is the same uh, that uh, I have read. Uh, this is one of the uh, rare references uh, where you have uh, the names not only of NQ, which is Notes and Queries, uh, which, uh, which was my main source of inspiration, uh, but there is a German journal uh, uh, here, English Studien, and then there is the Spectator, uh, which uh, which is a very good journal with very few idioms. But my team looked through all the volumes of the Spectator, and this is one eleven in nineteen thirteen. Uh, so uh, and after one uh, one eleven, uh, there there are another hundred more than one hundred volumes uh, of Spectator, and sometimes we gleaned a few good idioms there. And I now know all that has been written uh, about it. It doesn't mean that I know all about it, because like everybody who tries to cast uh, cast his or her net so wide, uh, one never knows whether one has missed something. And one always misses something. Uh, and that is what reviewers always say. They are usually irritable people, those reviewers. How could the author <laughs> miss such and such a source? Uh, it is such an obvious source. And uh, he has spent years uh, fishing for this exotic fish. And this is such an, ob- <laughs> such an obvious source. Uh, in the Scientific American for 1957, there is a good explanation. That's, of course, uh, all imaginary. And one uh, can only say, well, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I did miss it. Uh, It's very easy uh, to find fault and very difficult to find everything. I have no illusions about having uh, found everything. But uh, I have found, when I say I, I mean my team, of course, we all work together. We have found really as much as we could. And we tried not to to plagiarize other books with dictionaries and idioms uh, of idioms and in general of all dictionaries. The problem is that you can always open a dictionary and repeat what is said in it. Uh, mm-hmm. I think I haven't missed a single dictionary of idioms of English idioms, and I know a lot of books of French, German, and Russian idioms, but not as well and not in such detail as as uh, with English idioms, and I have compared the verdicts which I offered in my booklet uh, to what uh, was said there, and sometimes gave sour remarks. So-and-so says this without without citing any sources, or uh, so-and-so repeats the usual trivial explanation, which should be treated, may I use an idiom, with a grain of salt, uh, uh, and so on. Uh, uh, that is, uh, I think I know everything written about English idioms, but everything is such a very dangerous word. Uh, so with gooseberry, it was very interesting because uh, it, it is part of folklore too. In general, right. again, if you look uh, through my index, subject index, I am very proud of my indexes. I'm never proud of my books because that would be vanity. Uh, but I'm very proud of my indexes. You can find anything right away. Uh, you will see that there is a line called idioms and folklore. Uh, how many idioms there are uh, which go back to customs, uh, to popular uh, to popular customs uh, and uh, if you uh, look up uh, uh, the word index, uh, you will 
uh, and open it at the at the word broom b r o o m you will see that this idiom uh, appears in to hang out the broom and it's a detective story uh, a tale uh, which is extremely interesting who used to hang out the broom why the broom uh, was out and you will see it's like gooseberry uh, where uh, you you find idioms which are connected with certain beliefs uh, mr gooseberry was probably the devil and you very often find such such uh, euphemistic references uh, and here you have hang out the broom and you read things which are truly enthralling truly interesting so that is how it was it's not an idiom it's really a custom and it's if it's now an idiom uh, and as you see there there is no definition of what mm, it means right. uh, there is just an explanation <coughs> of the of the background of the situation You're listening to Anatoly Lieberman on my Friday book show, Big Books and Bold Ideas. I'm Carrie Miller, and we're talking about the idioms, those sparkling, colorful phrases that punctuate our speech. Anatoly has uh, put out, published a new dictionary of idioms called Take My Word For It, a Dictionary of English Idioms. And we're talking about the origins, when, when he could find them, the the folklore, the, the old uh, explanations that go into trying to establish the source of an idiom. But the book is just great fun. I mean, you can page through here at any point and come up with green-eyed monster. I mean, you know, idioms that we still use today, grin like a weasel in a trap. I don't know how many people are using that, but uh, hands full of pancakes, hang out the broom. So we're talking about where these idioms come from. Anatoly, I was curious about whether there are new idioms being introduced into our speech, whether you you hear that as you listen and observe patterns of speech today, or do most of the, you know, the idioms that we're using date back to anywhere from the 14th century on? No, no, not necessarily so, especially those which go back to sports. Uh, uh, they're probably new. By new, I don't mean brand new, uh, but they come from such popular spheres, uh, and uh, from baseball or from uh, from football, uh, and uh, they may be relatively new. I do not have a lot uh, about them, and uh, but I know for sure uh, that some of them originated during the Second World War, for example, uh, sports and and the Second World War, as I've just said, and they very often were slang first, and then lost uh, this uh, label of being slangy, uh, and now uh, everybody knows them, uh, and n- not necessarily the 14th century. Most of the uh, w- that is the date you mentioned. Most of them are much. Uh, later. Uh, Very few of them are pre-Shakespearean. Most of Mm. them are post-Shakespearean. And one of the interesting things is that uh, our ancestors uh, were not very fond of such expressions and hardly ever used these idioms. Uh, One of the uh, examples I always give, if you want to study Old English, and uh, then you will probably be, uh, uh, be asked to read Beowulf. Uh, It's a very difficult text to a modern reader. Sure is. Uh, But if you have a good dictionary and a good edition, and there are several splendid first-rate editions of Beowulf, and if you know the grammar, you will be able to understand everything. That is, you will never be asked to to interpret something uh, like being on a back burner. If something is put on a back burner... Something has been put on a back burner, period, uh, and uh, there is no figurative use. In general, being able to stay away uh, from the direct meaning of a phrase is something which is a post-Renaissance phenomenon. Uh, in those days, people used very few metaphors. They knew 
epithets. For example, you could, and and similes. Uh, you could say, my 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 be- beloved is like a rose. That's fine. You would never see my beloved is a rose because mm-hmm. that's already a metaphor. My my beloved is not a flower, so she is not a rose. She's like a rose. Then something happened, and it would take me a whole course to explain what happened and why at that time. Uh, but that's a post-Renaissance phenomenon. Shakespeare is already full of idioms. Chaucer, almost devoid of them. Beowulf, nothing. Uh, hmm. uh, Old Icelandic, which is a language uh, close to, to Old English, but not too close, sometimes had metaphorical expressions. Uh, for example, you could say, well, let us the, let me give you the background situation. If you show if you showed a white shield, uh, that meant that you were for peace. If a red shield, that meant that you were for uh, warfare. And there was an expression to uh, to wield two shields uh, that meant to prevaricate, to to say something ambiguous. You are both for peace and for war, and that is not clear. So such expressions existed, but only in Old Icelandic. And it's amazing uh, how far ahead of Old English or German uh, uh, Icelandic was. Uh, old Middle High German literature, which is one of the greatest literatures in the world, 13th century, Tristan, Parzifal, and so on, the greatest poems of the Middle Ages, there are practically no idioms. Uh, they may be tremendously difficult. The grammar is hard. The wording is unclear. Uh, everything uh, needs decipherment, but there are no idioms, or almost no idioms. That's something that we need only today. Today, my Dictionary of English Idioms is a book uh, of more than 700 pages thick. And someone who was the con- a contemporary of the Beowulf poet would not need even a brochure uh, uh, huh. for that. Uh, we are really post-medieval from this point of view. So this book, this booklet, and of course my booklet is uh, not a revelation, but my booklet is also a window uh, into the history of mentality and not only uh, into the history of language, in this case of the English language. So let's close with one of my favorite uh, idioms, which is keep your hair on. Yes. And I've opened the book to... 154 and it means stay calm but um you say most of the discussion is irrelevant except the following note by hyj taylor and then taylor goes into this description of where it comes from so where does it come from well uh, uh i can only i can only say that i think uh, the, the explanation is correct. Uh, that is something which is historically explained, uh, that the word hair probably stands for the wig uh, and not really the hair. Uh, in, uh, in, in a rage, uh, furious, being furious, uh, those people would uh, pick up uh, uh, the, the wig and throw it to the ground. <laughs> Incidentally, wigs were expensive, let me tell you. Uh, it's like our good hats. Uh, so w- wigs cost a lot of money. And if someone in a fury uh, wanted to show how he, of course only men, uh, males, uh, wore wigs, how furious he was, he would uh, throw down the wig and trample uh, on it and show his dissatisfaction with what is going on. And that is why people would say, now, calm down, calm down, uh, keep the wig on. But <laughs> instead of the wig on, it's keep the hair on. Uh, some of these sayings uh, are such as give us an insight into, into rites, rituals, customs, and they're dead uh, if we don't know uh, the custom today. Uh, I think people do still say, uh, still say, keep your hair on. Oh, they do. Oh, I think, yeah. yes. I think I've heard it and I've certainly seen it. Uh, but it's totally meaningless. Uh, our hair is there. 
Uh, there is nothing to keep on unless you <laughs> tear your... Know what, but we know what people mean we know what when the they say mean. it. Well, but that's the same thing as with words. Uh, you don't know the, don't know some word. You don't know what pusillanimous means. So you do what you always do in such cases. You use the great phrase, let us look it up in a dictionary. <laughs> that's the main piece of advice uh, you can get from anyone. Oh, so that is pusillanimous is. Oh, and that is the origin. Oh, all right, all right. Uh, so it's, uh, now, now I begin to understand why it means that. Uh, but some of these idioms, or probably most of them, uh, mean absolutely nothing uh, unless you know the history. On the same page, uh, you see the uh, the facetious expression, Katie bar the door. I love it. I'm uh, so glad you put that in there. Yes, right. it's, it's a funny thing. Uh, and, uh, and it means absolutely nothing. It's like a word. In a way, an idiom, a phrase, uh, is like a word. You learn the word pusillanimous, and you learn the phrase, keep your hair on. And you learn the phrase, kick the bucket. Uh, you don't know anything about kicking the bucket, you simply know what it means. The only difference between uh, between to die and keep the bucket is die is one word and keep the bucket is three words. But other than that, you don't know the origin of die and you don't know the origin of keep the bucket. And in order to know that, again, you use the great phrase, let us look it up in a dictionary. And sometimes you have this explanation and sometimes if the dictionary says origin unknown or or origin debated, or etymology unknown. And the same thing with phrases. The most dangerous thing is when books give wrong explanations. I know that our time is coming to an end, but I have to say one thing. Uh, so many people ascribe our idioms to Scandinavian mythology, to Old Norse mythology. Most of these people have never opened a book uh, dealing with Old Norse mythology. That's why they say such nonsense about the gods, Odin and so and Thor and so on. Uh, in order to say something uh, worthwhile about Old Norse mythology, I think everybody would agree with it, you have to know Old Norse mythology. And people will borrow explanations from other books, equally uninformed, uh, equally equally unconvincing and think, well, if it has been written in such a good book, that must be correct. No, no, it's just hearsay. If you want to know the source of an idiom, you have to study it. And that's the same thing as with everything in the world. If you want to know the source of an idiom, here's Anatoly Lieberman's new book. It's called Take My Word For It, A Dictionary of English Idioms. Professor, always a pleasure. Thank it's you. always a pleasure uh, to be invited and to speak about things which are do so dear, uh, dear uh, to my heart. We have been, I think, very polite uh, to each other. Uh, both you and I still have our hair on, and that's a, a very great <laughs> thing. I hope to be able to speak to you sometime later. <laughs> I do too. Thank you.